Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with the visual storyteller Myra Kalman. There is a shorter produced version of this at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Hello? Hello. Oh, can you hear me? I can. Good. <laughs> I've been, I've been, <laughs> That's I've been, crazy. I've been listening. Who is this? This is Krista Tippett. <laughs> Hi, Krista. How Hi. are you? <laughs> I've, been, I've been hearing you for a few minutes, but feeling oh, that's funny. very isolated here and lonely. <laughs> Where are you? I'm in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Ah, okay, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it sounds like Paul's got you all situated. So maybe we it just. It feels good. I have my tea. In. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would like to hear you say your name. I just want to make sure I get it. Sure. Acts. Okay. Myra Kalman. Okay, that's that's not hard. I just wondered if there was anything no, unusual you did with either one of those. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, Chris, how are we? Should we? Can we get going? Do you need anything? Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to meet you. Me too. I'll Ditto. be from a distance. Um, <laughs> have you done this kind of uh, interview before? With I have, and I've actually been in this very studio, though yeah. I can't at all remember what for. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> I think it's, which is probably a good thing. I, I think it's kind of, um, people always imagine when they hear that you're not necessarily in the room, that there's something lost. But I think this is also a very intimate way to speak and to be working with the human voice alone, which can carry so much. I agree. Okay, good. Um, well, let's just start in... Um, I, you were you were born in Israel, uh, sounds like, and you but you came to New York at the age of four. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, how would you describe um, the spiritual background of your childhood? However, you would define that. It's interesting because really all of my work goes back to my childhood, as many people uh, can say about their lives. And even the childhood of my mother in Belarus. So I'm yeah. constantly relating to and living in the family, the stories, the the, the light, the air, the the sea, mm. the cafes, the fluttering awnings. All of that resonates so strongly for me in all of my work, and I'm I'm painting and writing about it all the time, and even more so now. Mm. You know, I think that's right, that that so much of who we become and even like the questions we follow all our lives go, go back to that. But I, I feel like you're more in touch with that than a lot of people. Uh, it, it, relent, it's relentless whether I like it or not. <laughs> right. And it's also my, touch, yeah, yeah. Relent, you know, I'm yeah. relentlessly in touch with something wonderful, yeah. which I guess is a good thing. But I, uh, I'm... Uh, it's it's so profound and so wonderful and so sad and so everything that I can't stop it and it just gets richer and richer. It was your mother's family that came from Belarus, is that right? Or both my father both and them. my mother. They just came in different times and they I met see. in Israel, but they both came from little villages not far from each other, actually, which I went to visit a few years ago. Uh-huh. So... Um, 
I, you know, I don't know how you describe yourself. I think when people call you a visual storyteller, that's that that feels good, a good like a good pointer to me. Where where do you trace the roots of that in your in your early life? It's really such a a lovely and erratic tracing. I really thought that I was going to be a writer. And everything was uh, born of that. I read Pippi Long- Longstocking when I was eight years old, and I thought, that's it. I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm, I can do that. I can do that, mm-hmm. as they say in the, uh, in, in the show. And uh, then my writing became so heavy and laden with angst and misery mm. and confusion and so tedious that I thought, this can't, this can't be the right thing to do. I want to do something fun and easy, and that might be drawing. Uh, so my sister was an artist, and I thought, well, that looks like a tremendous amount of fun, even though, of course, the artists were very miserable, but I thought, I can do that. Mm. So uh, my writing informs my painting, and the painting informs the writing, and it, it, they really are connected in, in very intimate and, and vital ways. It's so interesting that you describe your early writing as angst-ridden, um, because that's so, that's so different from, I think, the words someone might use to describe your books, you know, that your, your illustrated writing now, right? I mean... Right. Well, the angst is invisible. I mean, I, I <laughs> worry and suffer tremendously, I must assure everybody, but I just somehow am able to eliminate that and come across as a very optimistic and joyous person, which in fact I also am, so I'm completely confused. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I mean, I would say, I don't know if I would, if I would talk about angst, but I, I mean, definitely, and we're going to talk about this, there's... You touch on very serious subjects, like very deep, serious parts of being alive, um, but somehow hold it in this um, in this context of pictures and words, which are also whimsical and playful. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say that one of the things that really struck me um, as kind of a theme, a thread, um, as I kind of looked at your body of work... Um, is that in fact you you actually work a lot with um, you actually hold together um, contradictory experiences and impulses that in fact are the very vitality of life, but that that we often tr- treat as opposites, um, right? So <laughs> so angst yes, and whimsy, I, yeah, um, right. but also I would say another one, just kind of thinking about how you just how I've seen you talk about how you spend your days, how you organize your life and your art, you know. On the one hand, what at least looks on the outside, like very much like just this great spontaneity. I mean, you know, this this ability and this to follow your nose kind of and and then work with that. But also you you adore ritual and and those two things work together for you. It's taken me these many years to understand that a human being can encompass very contradictory ideas and feelings at the exact same time. They're mm-hmm. not separate. They don't even follow each other so much. They just live in you. And for me to clarify what I love, to do what's amazing, to understand my confusion or my sorrow, and to still continue to... I mean, the, the thing about it is that you persevere, you know. And so mm-hmm. I do follow my nose, and I do, and I do have many rituals that I love following, and I love breaking the rituals. So... I'm not a prisoner of the of my of my the, the construct of my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'm spending too much time wandering around when I actually have work to do. <laughs> but I always say that's oh, well, this this must be the work that I need to do right now before I do that other work. And um, 
And so, and and really, I think the more that I the the more that I work, and the more that I see what my life is, the the more uh, simple it becomes, and very elemental. I mean, it's really a kind of a, it's very boring actually probably if most people had to live it they would go oh that's it <laughs> so well i mean let's talk about um you know how you start your days and so it's, it's interesting to me I, I i think you don't do this anymore but it, for a while you used to read the obituaries at the beginning oh, of the day I, that's that's my religion that i won't break every do you still do that day beginning of that's the first thing coffee and the obits okay how did that start when did that start <laughs> it started i uh, started when i was born i don't know it started so many years ago uh, uh, because and it's interesting because the movie about Obits just came out now and I went to see it the writing of course the essence of people's lives what happens to them in several hundred words mm. Mm. and a few pictures is really an extraordinary extraordinary way to start the day to see what the range of human endeavor is um, from what seems to be trivial to monumental, but n- you know, n- none of those are ever trivial, and monumental sometimes is even less interesting. But that there is a uh, great sense of of uh, hope in these obituaries because people have done amazing things. Yeah, I was somewhere. I'm just trying to. In the principles of uncertainty, I think you you have this place where you say maybe that you read the obituaries. At the beginning of every day, maybe it is a way of trying to figure out before the day begins what is important. And I am curious about all the little things that make up a life. Have you ever read the obituaries in British papers? Yes, I think I have. there's. I think they're better. They're they're really fantastic. <laughs> I don't want to say they're better because well, I love. I mean, you know, Marguerite Fox. I you know I adore her writing, and mm-hmm. so I don't know. But if but there is a different uh, there is a different wryness or something to them. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, but um, I'll they, take them yeah. all. Yeah. They. I think. Uh, I mean, that's because that's where I actually first started reading them. Um, and maybe it's just I don't know why I've never I've never really read them in the states, but I read them when I lived in the UK, and they 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 just weave a story. You know, it's 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 more narrative, um, and kind of I don't know. They kind of it, they 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 kind of reveal and lay out like the grandeur of a of a life mm-hmm. with a few more words. I think that's one thing they just use. Right. They they give more time. Um. Can you uh, do you have some favorite obituaries or obituaries that come to mind that have struck you recently? Like just as well, an example. recently I just read the obit of a of a of a Hungarian woman whose family escaped the Holocaust, and she ended up marrying a cousin of Nehru, and lived in <laughs> India and and uh, had this extraordinary life. So I love that one. Uh, what else was recently amazing? I mean, whenever I think of uh, the best obituaries, I think of the the man who invented the bunt pan, who I have in my book. But, <laughs> right. Uh, oh, there's another one. Just, Megan Boyd in Scotland. Yes, Megan one? Boyd, who 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 created uh, the flies for fly fishing her entire life and lived in a little village and was the most famous fly fly fishing. I don't even know what you call that a person no. who creates the the flies. Uh, yeah. So she had a fantastic obit and a beautiful photo that I did a painting of. But it was also very kind of intricate, long work, right? I mean, it was. It, it yes. sounds so romantic when we say it like that, and in fact, history making in a way. But it was also the yeah. the care and the detail. Well, you know, that's what. Once again, the perseverance of work, mm-hmm. the insistence that you keep doing it and you keep 
you continue uh, whenever, you know, when you continue no matter what. Yeah. And through bad periods and better periods. So there she was sitting at her bench 16 hours a day. And when she was invited to Buckingham Palace, she said she couldn't go because she had to go to a dance in the village. Right, and right. I thought, now this yeah. woman's a genius. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then... Um, so you read the obituaries, and then do you, and then do you walk every day? Walk in the park? Yes. Well, I I meet a friend, and it's now it's twenty years that we have walked three times a day in Central Park. Mm. The other days I try to walk, but I'm not as motivated without her. Uh, she's a, a great companion, and then we have a cup of coffee. She's a doctor. She goes and saves lives, <laughs> and I I don't know what I do. I save myself, or I or I or I help uh, I help other people live. Mm. And uh, it's it's and and in between, after we finish the coffee, I take the bus down Fifth Avenue, and then I'm probably the happiest person uh, in you know on the bus. And then I say in New York, and then I say in the United States, and then I say in the world. <laughs> but <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't last. It doesn't last that long because you've been hours. walking. You mean that? Yes. Okay. I mean, yeah, I feel like you're very sensitive also to uh, your, how you're, you're, you're walking. You're, you're also walking your brain and you're walking your heart and you're walking your eyes that are observing the world. It's really extraordinary. I mean, when we're in the park and there aren't that many people there and we go all year round, uh, I, we think, where is everybody? How could they be so <laughs> stupid <laughs> as not to understand what they have here for, them, for, you know, for themselves? Mm, but mm. there you go. Here's another line of yours I love. We see trees. What more do we need? That's really true. I mean, everybody, you, it's, it's really hard to be sad. And, of course, I'm always looking at the things that make somebody less sad, mm, uh, mm. a.k.a. happy, and, uh, uh, which is not a.k.a. at all. And so walking and looking at trees really is one of the glories of the of the of the world, and you know, we just we say rejoice when we see yeah. these things. We you know we say that when we see people walking and going about their business. But something about trees, of course, uh, I they're very hard to paint, by the way. But I'm I'm mm. happy to try. Mm. Well, and again, I I don't know. I, mean, I guess I'm speaking for myself, but I I think I've also heard plenty of people talking about you know really important moments of their lives that had to do with pondering a tree and. I mean, I think we all have this experience, or so many of us do, that you, that you are captivated by these. I mean, you know, it's amazing to me that trees are just, they're so perfect and gorgeous and amazing, and they, they just are. They um, just are. They just yeah. are, and they are whether yeah. we're looking at them or painting them or admiring them or not or whatever the weather is. Um, but I don't think most people, you know, even as I say that um, about myself, I don't, I don't put myself into that position to be adoring them and letting them make me be happy and get some perspective on my life, right? But you put yourself out there to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always, you can always start. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You can look, and you know, uh, leaves grow on trees and birds sit in trees and Mm. birds sing. And Mm. it's just, it's a whole beautiful package. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I think we touched on this a little bit when we, when we touched on angst at the beginning of our conversation, but another... I would say just um, juxtaposition that you hold together and you hold together as vitality is kind of life's intrinsic whimsy and quirkiness and also life's intrinsic sorrow. 
Yeah, and actually, I wouldn't uh, attribute the uh, whimsy and the quirkiness. I would say it's completely inexplicable, random, yeah, confusing, okay. <laughs> fragile yeah. fragment. You know that we uh, we impose, I impose in my way, a sense of humor about it all. Of course, because yeah. we always said if you don't have a sense of humor, you're finished. But I don't. Uh, I I don't know what the world offers. The world offers so many different things that are in, really incomprehensible. Yeah. So um, the take that you have on it, of course, is what what happens with the rest of the day. Right. Right. Well, you know, there's this one. Um, I, I didn't see this anywhere else. Um, obviously, I haven't read every single word, but there's one place. Um, uh, and, and I believe it's in the principles of uncertainty where you you say that you, your mother um, and it, um, did not marry the man she loved, but instead your father. Is that right? That's true. You know, yeah, and so as I was sad. thinking about this, I thought, well, there's, I mean, because you said, you've, you've said that your mother is just such an anchor and of your imagination. And, and that really struck me as something to have in a childhood to know um, that that's formative. I think about that a lot because I was so close to her. My father was away a lot. He traveled half the year, not consecutively, but he was really gone a lot. And the women were left, as I say, to their own devices, which Mm. in our case was was kind of wonderful because he was a a rather, in the old form, a patriarchal man who ruled, you know, ruled as the patriarchs did in in those generations. So when he was away, we were we really flourished in a way and found out what it was like for, for. to be a woman, to be a young girl, to be a woman, and to just be who you are. And so, um, I, you know, I, of course, there are so many sad things about that. But uh, I think that the strength of the women in my family was so formidable, even even in their sorrow or suffering, or, or that um, something registered in me that said, you can observe uh, really unhappy relationships. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And still find a good one. I found a fantastic relationship with my husband. So I think probably one of the things I learned was what not to do. Mm. So it's a good lesson. You can watch closely and say, aha, this is not going to happen to me. Yeah, well, I'm, that's good. It, but I, it, can, it can work both ways. Did Did you know yeah. when you were growing up, was this a story your mother told about herself, about this man? No, she, she never— you know, my mother never uh, said anything about anything negative, mm-hmm. uh, and it was really from other people in the family mm. and family lore that right. you know you just absorb through the years that uh, she was madly in love with somebody else, and it just it, uh, it for the fates did not allow it. Yeah, um, I mean, and and again for all the um, beauty and playfulness and. You know, what is it you say? You know, the subject of my work continues to be the normal daily things that people fall in love with. Um, and then you you also are very open about thinking a lot about death and fearing death. Is that, has that always been true? Who does? You know, Krista, well, who doesn't? I'm, I'm always do amazed if somebody says, you think about death so much. And I said, what are you thinking about? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I can't imagine. But I thought about it when I was... Um, when I was getting ready for this, I I don't know that I do think about it. I mean, I have all kinds of fears. I've, it's not that I don't yeah. have fears and anxieties, but I don't know. Not in the way, not in the way it comes out in your work. Yeah, I think you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't you know what? I think that it has of course it has a lot to do with 
the fa- the family history, mm-hmm. which is especially from my father, who left Belarus and his family didn't leave, and they thought, well, you know, what could go wrong? And they were all killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what went wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, I was brought up on the idea that everything could disappear, and this is nothing. Obviously, many many people have this that <clears throat> that. Uh, Everything all could be lost in yeah. a nanosecond, that you're never safe, and that um, tragedy and literal killing is is part of the possibility. Yeah. And especially going to Israel and having the sense of, again, being warriors in the defense of a nation that's being attacked in the, in the historically. Of course, things have changed so dramatically now it's intensely complicated to even discuss it. But if, from the point of view of people who were escaping the Holocaust and coming to Israel, the sense of, you know, we we cannot let this happen again. So that somehow enters into this, somehow it very clearly enters into the persona of, well, wow, my family was killed. Yeah, well, it's in your DNA is what we're yeah. learning, right? It's yeah. literally in right. your body. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. And and then and your husband died at 49, which is so young, although you had such a good long time together. Right? You had we had three, an extraordinary life. Three and I think we three Yes. And um, uh, I think how, how fortunate, how completely amazing that we met in the <clears throat> summer flunk-out class at NYU <laughs> in the late 60s when everybody was doing everything except going to school. Yeah. And we had such an, an amazing time and uh, and. And you know, and had a family, had two children, and worked together, and really were each other's muses and support in every way. Um, so, I am, I I am profoundly grateful to have had that relationship and to have somehow been with a man who was very courageous and and taught me mm-hmm. how to be brave. Mm. Because he was brave, did he teach you by being that? He was. He was. You know, I always used to say he was fearless. Mm. He didn't ever think anything would stop him ever. You know, mm. he did. It. It just wasn't in his vocabulary. Mm. So, when you live with somebody like that, uh, it's very interesting to say you have an idea, and then if you don't act on it, well, why wouldn't you? Uh, it sounds very simple because, of course, some things don't work out, and and it's it's not always such a straight line. But you live in a diff- you're breathing a different kind of air, right? Right. There's a there's a passage where you write and illustrate um, about. You know, I mean, you start with Gershwin dying at the age of 38 of a brain tumor. You say he's buried in the same cemetery as my husband. My husband died at the age of 49. I could collapse thinking about that. But I don't want to talk about that now. I want to say that I love that George is nearby under a leafy tree and Ira Gershwin, too. We're going to visit him next week. And I and it really, the high point is, we can say, I like visiting Tibor, but the high point is going to the Gershwins. No, I also, also the Barasinis are nearby. And I always think of a beautiful box of chocolates and how they should have a chocolate store there in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's actually, it's very uplifting to go to a cemetery. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. And so yes, somehow is. things fall into place in a, in a nice way. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's. It's good to visit him. Mm. Um, when did he die? Now, how when? How long has that it's been? eighteen years? A few days ago. Oh, okay. 
Um, it was also interesting to me. I mean, you're you're beloved and known also for your um, Max Stravinsky, the poet dog, and your writings about dogs and your books about dogs, also for children and it, but also writing for adults. Um, that you actually got your first dog, Pete, when your husband Tibor was dying from cancer. So there was that connection. It was really profound. And of course, I was terrified of dogs before that and would never entertain getting one. But we decided that uh, for the sake of the children, it was really incredible to have a dog uh, who would be a great mood elevator. And I just didn't realize that I was probably the recipient of the most most mood elevation uh, from Pete. Um, You wrote in Beloved Dog... um, I thought this was wonderful. I'm sure many people who love dogs will resonate with this. They are constant reminders that life reveals the best of itself when we live fully in the moment and extend our unconditional love. And it is very true that the most tender, uncomplicated, most generous part of our being blossoms without any effort when it comes to the love of a dog. (laughs) (laughs) That's my... My children have something to say about that. What do they say? <laughs> so, well, they want to know who you know who I love more. Of course, <laughs> you know, and they're not such children anymore. But I think that when they were younger, there was a little bit of a so. Who do you really love over here? But uh, but because of the simplicity of it, because of yeah. the, not you know then uh, that we can do it, we can do that really easily. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah, the, the love, the un- the love of with our ch- the love relationship with our children is complicated because yeah, they can speak. They are complicated. They, they can speak. They, that's a that's a big problem right away. So. <laughs> Although I have to say, you know, every once in a while, I hear people, very smart people, making these, you know, these blanket statements that we all kind of assume are true. That like, you know, people will say things about we humans are the only creatures who have I don't know memory or consciousness mm-hmm. or an ability to think about the future, and I I just I don't know why do we why do we yeah you know, there's so much we don't understand about. Animals and that's true. As you say because now they can't we know speak. that an octopus is really smart. You know, <laughs> right, who knew? So right, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also love how you um, you name uh, the dogs as natural comedians. Yes, of course, they're very funny. I mean, that's of course when I started looking at them. You know, when you're walking down the street, they're just they're heroic and they're comic at the same time, which I mm-hmm. guess is my favorite way of looking at things. I, I feel like you, um, I think what people love in your work also is that you're a real connoisseur of the art of, of laughing at oneself and also making other people laugh. Uh, and I, I think that must be very a very joyful thing to be able to do. It is, and I, I probably understood that when I was quite young. Mm. And maybe that was one of the things that I decided I needed to have in the face of whatever uh, craziness was going on in my family that... Uh, having a sense of humor. And I don't know, it just came naturally. But I, I think also maybe coming from another country and, and just observing and having a sense of pleasure and joy in, in learning a new language and mm-hmm. watching people. But I just, uh, I, and, and of course, in my family, everybody had a great sense of humor. So it wasn't as if I, I invented it in my family. That, that was the language of conversation, that you told funny stories. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, that's a real gift, right? That's a real gift to grow up with that. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. especially from people, you know, who come from the Russian, you know, yes. the, the, <laughs> the tragic Russian writers. But hand in, as we say always, hand in hand with that right. was a stupendous sense of humor and, sh- and a sharp wit. Well, and they, there's a synergy between those things, right? There's, yeah. there's an interactivity. Um, have you, I remember a few years ago I interviewed this, um, he was like a neuropsychologist and he was studying, he was studying um, creativity in the brain and interestingly the difference between intelligence and creativity. And of course they're not completely separate, um, but they are different. And one of the measures that they use of creativity is a sense of humor. That probably good. Is it a good thing? Yeah, it's right. a good thing. <laughs> it's a, yeah, like it's a measure, that, right? Yeah. Well, that that, that, that humor is about um, making unexpected and connections, clever right. connections, um, that are meaningful and powerful. So that you know, it's funny, but it's more than just funny. Yes, you know that we say it's. We always say it's funny because it's true. That's that's our joke in the family, but it's not <laughs> right. only our joke. It's funny because it's true. So when you can connect with something that's so elementally true and flip it on its head, then you're really talking about life. You know, you're not you're not doing slapstick. Yeah, which right. sometimes I guess is funny too. Mm. Do you have a meditation practice? I have a limping. I know that's kind you know, of a um, personal question, but I, I've seen you. No, no, about it's fine. Yeah, I, the the good news is that there's nothing personal about it. I uh, was hired by a wonderful editor, Barry Boyce, at Mindful Magazine, to do a column about to meditate and to do a column about meditation. So I always say I was paid to meditate, which I think is not a bad way <laughs> to encourage somebody to do it. That's right. And uh, I went on a few uh, very short, silent retreats, a few days, and you know, I was taught the practice of meditation. And, and then I wasn't flippant about it. I really enjoyed it, and I really understood the value of being able to calm your soul and steady your, your anxieties, um, especially in the middle of the night. I'm immensely grateful that I have this practice, which I don't do regularly at all, Mm. you know, on the bus or walking here or waiting online or something like that or in the middle of the night. So I think that it's it's non-spiritual and it's non-religious, which is really important for me because I don't like any any religious dogma at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I value um, the sense that it's humanistic. Right. Well, and actually— I feel it's something you both portray in your work and model is honoring, I would say, meditative spaces or even contemplative spaces in the everyday, but also in public life, like parks or museums. Or, you know, I think of libraries in this way as well. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think about it that way? I dwell. I absolutely think that a museum is the one of the deepest places of meditation that there could be. Yeah, maybe even more than a library because you're looking in a, in a museum. You're not reading. I mean, you're reading a little bit, but you're basically just wandering and looking. And once again, the function of the brain, what happens to the brain, is very different um, than I don't know than being in a supermarket. Even though I yeah, love being yeah. in a supermarket. So wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I right. love supermarkets. I love to look at all the packaging. To me, that's a little bit like a museum, but that's a digression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we are we have the opportunity to understand silence around us and and really looking 
yeah. all the time. There's always the opportunity, and it's there's never a lack of things to look at, and and there's never the opportunity, you know, there's never a lack of time not to talk. Yeah, and I mean, um, museums are just among the very few silent places in our in culture. I mean that. Right where that is part of the element of the experience, it's actually very unusual. I guess when we listen, I guess when we go to a concert, I, mean, I guess there are places mm-hmm. we listen, but there's not. Uh, there's right, not, it's different right. than looking looking at something and not talking and <clears throat> absorbing it in, yeah. in that way. And also, I it's, think having yeah, go on, go on. I was just going to say that it's uh, if if you approach it the right way and don't trudge through too many things that you can't stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really gives you a sense of inspiration and uh, and clarity in your life. I think I, I, I spoke to Anne Hamilton a couple of years ago, and you know, she used this phrase, alone together. I think that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. It's different from being at a concert or a performance where, where you're having a communal, a collective experience because you're kind of, it's both in a museum, right? You're having a very personal m- meander and what right. you're paying attention to, you're choosing, but and yet you are not alone. And it's, you know, I spend Fridays at the Met because, for two reasons. One, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, I have an exhibit at the Met with the, an installation with my son, called, uh, which is a recreation of my mother's closet oh. called Sarah Berman's Closet, which is going to be there um, until September. And it's in the American wing. And it's a wonderful—my mother only wore white, and she was very precise about her— clothing and about her her closet and her closet really was a work of art in its way so it's now Mm -hmm. at the Met I'm happy to say but the other thing that I did was a a collaboration with Monica Bill Barnes who was a choreographer and we created this uh, museum workout I don't know if you heard about it no tell me (laughs) so it's the museum it's the Met Museum workout and it uh, she and her and another dancer lead 15 people through an exercise routine to blasting music uh, through a path that I curated and narrated in tape, uh, in recordings, through the Met, and in the morning. And then everybody has a nice little breakfast, and off they go on their merry way. And uh, well, I it, give people cards that say, keep moving. So is it ongoing? It was, it, is it happening? It's, well, it was happening, and it was such a success, that, it, and it sold out so frequently that they uh, it's coming back in July. And so for those, for your, for the listeners who are interested, they can go to the Met Museum or Museum Workout oh, and, and uh, see if a ticket is, so uh, is available. But it's a really in- interesting experience because it includes moving and not thinking, empty brain, mm-hmm. which we love, mm-hmm. uh, music, and looking at art mm-hmm. and a nice cup of coffee. So I think this is a perfect situation. <laughs> a perfect experience. Yeah. Um, y- you know, so your mother's closet... Uh, I mean, I guess even when you said that the supermarket for you is kind of like a museum that you're looking at the packaging, and I think of also the way you talk about being in the park and also how you focus. You also take great delight in clothing, hats, shoes, um, and not in, a, not in the way we tend to think about those things in terms of fashion, but in terms of how interesting humans are, <laughs> how interesting yeah, life is. <laughs> I'm I'm so curious about so many things that I'm I surprise myself by with, with my curiosity and my and my desire, uh, my delight in seeing all of this stuff because at a certain point you'd say okay enough already, but clearly it's never enough and I um, and the, you know it's a surprise you just don't know yeah. what you're going to see yeah. and the fact that I can use that surprise in my work, the fact that I can s- not know 
what the painting that I have to do tomorrow will include for an assignment that I, I know what the assignment is, but I don't know what woman wearing what dress, walking what dog, mm. if that's the case, or mm. some person's playing the violin on the street, how they enter the work. And I think that the immediacy of my emotions is felt in the drawings. Mm. It, it occurred to me also when I was thinking about this matter of contemplative spaces that you kind of shine a light on as like, I would say ordinary spaces really that you shine a light on as contemplative spaces um, or meditative spaces even I think I mean you've done some New Yorker covers and the New Yorker's important to you and it's important to a lot of us um, I almost think that New Yorker covers every once not every week but every once in a while are meditative spaces right they you know what I'm saying they kind of speak to a moment and you you have to pause and look at that picture and think about it. And it, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, hope you know. Hopefully, a lot of them. They're not they're not just a one liner. You mm-hmm. know, they really do require great. There there are so many smart people working on these pieces on these covers. Mm-hmm. And you know, Francoise Mouly is the is the art director of the cover, the cover editor, um, and the. The rigor that goes into the discussions about what a cover would be is really interesting, and um, yes, so they're always they're always at least really good and sometimes amazing. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's kind of something that people are looking at in their own time, in their own space, and yet there's a collective aspect to the experience of the cover. So interesting. Right. Mm. That must be wonderful to to do that, right? To be to be somebody who occasionally creates those. I think it's amazing, and I I also love I create occasional pages where I just write a page and do a painting of something that I've seen that's mm-hmm. really wonderful, mm-hmm. and it's it's inconsistent and it's sporadic and depending on what they want in the magazine, but I can do a page about a donut in a coffee shop. Um, or a um, you know, or an exhibit in Venice, mm. or a library in Dublin. So it's just uh, it, it's a repository of so many wonderful opportunities. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about um, the principles of uncertainty, which was um, <clears throat> to like continue on your uh, the, the philosophical meditative side of you, <laughs> which is also, is also whimsical. Um, uh, which started, it's interesting to me, so it was a blog, right? It was an illustrated blog. This is, it's, I think this is an amusing question where they asked, where you asked, how much space do I have? When you're, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to a, uh, a meeting at the New York Times yeah. and saying, really not, I mean, this, you know, 2005, saying, what, how much space do I have? Yeah. <laughs> and they said. Fortunately, they said, as much as you please, <laughs> go, go, go to it. This thing called the Internet. <laughs> yeah, doesn't, exactly. Doesn't have a, a hundred character limit. Um, it's interesting, you know, your mother comes in again, your mother's map of the world. Um, obviously, people who are just listening to us talk won't have that picture in front of them. But talk about what is there and why that is so important for you. That's an important touch point for you. That map. I have to say that the map, for those listeners who are inclined, I've spoken of it so many times that it must be online. So if you go to Sarah Berman's map of the United States or something like that, 
you might find it. But uh, I, when I was doing the next year's piece, the, the year that I did about American history and the pursuit yeah. of happiness yeah. for the New York Times after my year of, of introspection, uh, they sent me to all kinds of places. And I asked many people to draw a map of the United States from memory. Just sit down and do it. And, you know, as I say, it's a complicated country with lots of different sections. And I don't think most people would get it 100% right. But my mother sat down and made an egg-shaped circle and Canada on top. So, so far, so good. But then she has California and Hawaii underneath Canada. Uh, she has, I don't, you know, I don't have it in front of me. She has, I think, what does she have? Or maybe she has, uh, uh, does she have Texas in the right I place? Was I was going br- to bring it with me, too, and I also forgot. Um, yeah, so, I and mean, you think I'd know it by, by now, but she has... Everything is completely topsy-turvy. She has <laughs> Lenin, the village she came from, and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and she <laughs> has a few random places that you, you are incomprehensible. And then through the center, she says, sorry, the rest unknown. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and I have a huge version of that on my wall to remind me that it's not about, and I always say it's not about getting it right. It's about just about getting it. Mm. And that's a big big difference. If you have the freedom to use your imagination and to really express what you're thinking, you're going to come up with something a lot different than than a correct version of the United States of America or anything. Well, and it's also evocative right now in a way that you wouldn't have foreseen previously, but you know, this fact that we all of us all around in all of our differences seem to be operating with different maps of the places that we know and the places that matter. Um, I mean, that's a real phenomenon right now, these these maps in our heads that are... That's the maps in our heads. And, yeah. you know, of course, then I think about the New Yorker stand map that I did with Rick Meyerowitz for The New Yorker after yes. 9-11. And I think yes. that with the conversations that people have about who are the tribes... Who who do you belong to? Who do you belong with? Do you want to belong? Are there all kinds of new tribes now that we never you know understood or knew about? And really to find out you know who's who who do you love and who do you want mm-hmm. to be with? So mm-hmm. people are asking those questions now, obviously yeah. intensely and more than ever. I think in New York, uh, Trump is coming to New York today, and there are going to be demonstrations. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everybody is just completely, you know, crazed, of course. But so you're forced to say, who, who, who do I relate to yeah. and who do I respect? Yeah. And that's a really big question. And who am I afraid of? Yeah. You know, that that you, it would almost be a really fascinating civic activity for you to um, to ask Americans to do their map, you know, to have your mother's map as the as the prototype mm-hmm. and say, create yeah. your own. That's a good idea. You know, it would be right now fascinating. Um, That's a very good idea. The the Pursuit of Happiness book, as you said, also came out of, I mean, yeah, that that's the story behind that in, in, and what comes out in the book is, I mean, you 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 went to all these places, right? You, you, you met with all kinds of different public service and you went to the Capitol and farms and Mount Vernon and the White House. Mm-hmm. How, how, I went to the inauguration. I met right. with Bader Ginsburg. I went to an army base. All the places that I wouldn't have access to as a normal person, the New York Times was able to send me to, to all of these places. Yeah. How did, that, how did that surprise you? How did that change you, that experience? It, it, it changed me profoundly. I really knew very little about American history. And the more I traveled and the more I read and the more I met people, uh, the more extraordinary 
the history of the United States, it was clear that this country is founded by a group, by some miracle chance of geniuses, (laughs) and that they were able to form an idea this was 2010, we should say, right? Or the book was published no, in 2010. Well, uh, actually, I was. I did the traveling. Th- I started 2008 with the okay. inauguration of Obama. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> you know, went to Monticello and uh, did a piece about Lincoln and did a piece about Jefferson and and really had a chance, still superficial, obviously, to uh, admire the United States so much more than I ever had, mm-hmm. with all the complexity, with all of the horrible parts which exist for every country and uh and i had a lot of fun thinking about all the good things that go on here yeah yeah it's a it's a beautiful celebration um uh and you know and i say that and that can sound like a coffee table book and it's not right it has that whimsy it has that quirkiness it has this constant interaction that is there in real life between play and what's interesting and fun and also hard and sad. There's a part, again, I meant to bring this, but you know, it's okay because nobody who's listening to us is going to have the pictures in front of them either. You were at Fort right. Campbell, Kentucky, mm-hmm. the 101st Airborne Division. Um, the way you wrote about those soldiers uh, in that place, say, say a little bit about that, about what you saw that. It was very moving to me. I, the... The thing that happens when you meet people is that all generalizations fly out the window. And you realize that people are leading very uh, particular and very complex lives and that you can't just make blanket statements. This group does this and that group does that. I mean, it's just immensely complicated. And every human being is a human being. So people who you might think you have absolutely nothing in common with philosophically or just on a daily level, you find out that there's a tremendous amount of contact. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, it it might be so obvious to say that, but I don't think that you can uh, appreciate that until you actually go and live that. Mm-hmm. And so the the more often that you can, it reduces a kind of arrogance or a kind of superiority like, oh, I know the right way and you obviously don't, to uh, clearly we have different ways of looking at things, but we really can have a, a conversation about it and um, and find the common humanity. So that's what that taught me yeah. in, in, a, in a really wonderful way. And, and you know, that one... Um I, and I wish I'd written it down, but you know, you, you, I mean, you talk about the and they were they were getting the 101st Airborne Division was getting ready to go to the battlefield, right? I think to Iraq right. or Afghanistan, and um, uh, so I mean, they were doing serious business. But you talk about you know how they are, each one of them is so amazing. Each one of them breaks your heart. Um, you know, just that the, the human, the, the humanity, and there's, then there's a picture of a piece of cherry pie. <laughs> Do you remember this from the base? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always looking out for a good pie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a good painting of a pie. You know, it's those moments, of course, the smaller moments diffuse the the bigger ones. And also yeah. they're they're really uh, important. And so uh, how do you sit together over a cherry pie? Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't that great, but, you know, it was Good the picture, it looked delicious in the picture. Yeah, the picture was better than the... <laughs> Irresistible. I think you said something like, you know, this this uh, great solace is provided by in the base by the cher- piece of cherry pie. <laughs> yes. Um, I feel like Lincoln is really important to you too, Abraham Lincoln. I love Lincoln. <laughs> I'm in love with Lincoln. Yeah. 
And how did that happen? Has that been a long time, love? <laughs> and he doesn't know. I haven't said a word to him. Right. Um, uh, it started. Well, I, I was asked by the uh, by the uh, by a library in Philadelphia to do a piece about Lincoln, and. Um, so I went to their archive and I was looking at the work and started and, and I have books of photographs of Lincoln. Of course, he is the iconic the first person to be photo, the first president to be photographed, and also just this extraordinarily beautiful humanitarian man of kindness and wit, a you know, a poet. And uh so I and the more I read about him, the more I understood that he did have a sense of humor and that he also was completely brilliant and I thought I really had a big crush on him, and I was a little bit annoyed that he was with Mary Todd Lincoln. <laughs> I wasn't even, you know, and I wasn't registering the, the the glitch of the time thing. I just was like, I really should be with him. And um, so uh, it was, and it's, you know, who do, who doesn't fall in love with Lincoln? You mm-hmm. spend five minutes reading about him or looking at his face, mm-hmm. and it's really hard not to fall in love with this man. I did notice that you... You noted that his stepmother loved him madly and let him be free to daydream. And I feel like you saw, you know, your own mother and your, the way she let you be free to daydream in that. That's true, mm-hmm. I, you know, the connection. But uh, they make a lot of it in the history books that mm-hmm. she really was somebody very unusual. And he didn't wasn't so keen on doing chores mm-hmm. uh, the way all the other boys were. And he was, he was more interested in reading Shakespeare, which is extremely unusual. He, you know, he only had a year of formal schooling. Mm-hmm. So for somebody to be kind and love you for that, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's very, that's critical. Mm-hmm. And also he's, I think, I think we know this, right, that he's a good example of that. You said he has a sense of humor. I mean, he's kind of this glorious human being and also somebody who had great sadness and struggled with depression. Do we know right. that for sure? I mean, right, all of that help. I mean, like so many of us hold all those kinds of things together. Yeah, I mean, Jefferson had, um, <clears throat> you know, severe migraine attacks, which come from stress and, mm. you know, and sadness also. I mean, other things maybe. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine a human being, any human being that doesn't have attacks of depression. So yeah. clearly somebody who's living his life, losing his children, being in the war, I mean, I, I, the list could go on. It. How could he not be depressed? There'd have to be something wrong with him yeah. if he didn't get go into depressions. And, and then, of course, he only lived four days after the end of the Civil War, which is an extraordinarily sad yeah. fact for the for him and for the country and for history. Yeah. Um, this is um, this is kind of going back to the walks you take in the morning. Um, I or I don't know if this is just in the morning, but you, something you write about is that you. Um, you have a specialty of following old people who have trouble walking. <laughs> yes, and I, I, I really try to walk like them. And and tell me about that. Uh, you know, I'm co-creating a ballet now with a wonderful choreographer called John Higginbotham. And he's doing the choreography, but a lot of the time I'm very sensitive to the fact that I'm in, a, I'm in not I'm doing this, the visuals, but I'm also in it. Uh, hmm. which I guess constitutes being an older person in a ballet. <laughs> and so the way that we move through space is really interesting to me, and I am 
conscious of the fact that we are moving and dancing in our way all day long. And um, it's funny because Nietzsche, if I can quote mm. Nietzsche, said that a day that doesn't have dance in it is a lost day, which you wouldn't expect from somebody like Nietzsche, who no. so no. who was crazy. But at any yeah. rate, um, but also <laughs> and intense and, and intense, <laughs> and had such a giant mustache as I write about. But it, but I never, when I saw that quote, I said this is incomprehensible. But the fact is that we really are all moving and dancing all day long, mm. and the older you get the more challenging it is, obviously, and the more dangerous it is. And you can trip. I, I tripped on the sidewalk and broke my arm, and I thought, well, mm. how did this happen? This is absurd. So I, uh, my heart goes out to everybody. That's it. My heart goes out mm. to everybody. You, you wrote these, this, these are beautiful words, I think, and this is from Principles of Uncertainty, I'm pretty sure. How, how are we all so brave as to take step after step, day after day, how are we so optimistic, so careful not to trip and yet do trip, and then get up and say, okay, why do I feel so sorry for everyone and so proud? That's a good question. Why? Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you mentioned aging, and I, I did want to – I wanted to ask you about that because um, it, it feels to me like um, – like you accomplished earlier or you kind of held on to something that I think we mostly do when we're kids and then many of us learn to do again as we get older, which is just to slow down, look around, appreciate, <laughs> challenge the idea that there's any reason to be in a hurry. Mm -hmm. But I feel like you kind of held on to that across your lifespan rather than letting it go for the middle years and then coming back to it, relearning it. And, you know, it's incomprehensible how that happened. But I did, I, you know, I hear that from people. It's not something that I, I don't hear, that I somehow have retained the sense of wonder yeah. about the world and um, the sense of beauty yeah. and uh, uh, preciousness of our time. So... I mean, sometimes I'm stumbling about not thinking very much, but the, um, but I, and I have never tried to be that way. That's just, I guess that's how I am. Mm -hmm. Do you think that also came, grew out of you, that you were emboldened or equipped to do that because of your mother and somehow the way your childhood worked or just also, I guess, how you're constituted? You know, I... It, Oh, I, I, the separating the threads is something that I can't do because you're born a certain way with a certain temperament, mm -hmm. and then the the fates allow this temperament to flourish or not, yeah. depending on you know on luck. Yeah. So I was lucky. Yeah. But I I do feel like it's possible to learn this, and I kind of think your work, your pictures, your books, your writing are little encouragements, <laughs> right? Do you feel that? I mean, I think you must get that. I think you must get that re response to people too, from people too. Right, but then I get annoyed at being so encouraging and I say, wait, I'm really, I have black moods too. Like, don't okay. be so encouraged. It's not so good. So I get a little bit uh, contrarian. Mm. But, uh, but, you know, probably I can see with my children uh, and who are, who are grown and that the conversation that we have at home about having a sense of openness and wonder and, 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 and humor, uh, I can see that in them mm. and that they 
that, so maybe it, the, it's the atmosphere, you know, it's the, it's the right conditions as opposed to teaching somebody. Or maybe just you're looking at somebody else do it and you say, oh, that, that looks nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Who knows? That's what I say at the end of the day. Um, I don't know anything. Yeah. And poor everybody. <laughs> Those are uh, uh, family slogans. <laughs> um, you, you wrote something else that I just wanted to read. It um, kind of speaks to that. Because I, I think the reason your work is not um, it's you know I know what you're saying you you don't want to that sounds kind of cheesy and romantic romantic and optimistic um, to be encouraging but it's not right it's complex right. It's, right it's all you know and I shouldn't even I shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed of being of seeming to be optimistic or encouraging <laughs> right. because really it's it's okay it's right I say it's okay it's fine yeah it's right. it may be um, unfashionable but. <laughs> Yeah, it may also be okay. necessary. I mean, here right. you wrote this about you're going to Israel with your sister. My sister and I go to Israel during the short, furious, the world is over, the world is doomed war for a wedding because you cannot postpone weddings in dark times. And dark is capitalized, especially in dark times. Who knows when the light will come on again? Are things normal? I don't know. Does life go on? Yes. <laughs> That's what we say every day. Mm. Mm. Life goes on. Mm-hmm. This is kind of an enormous question, but I want to know kind of where you would start walking into it. Um, how your sense of this question of what it means to be human, how your sense of that is evolving now at this point in your life. Well... I think that, you know, I joke about not knowing, but I think that and as people get older, they, they tend to say more clearly, I really don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that isn't completely true. But the only thing that I'm left with is, you know, who, really, who, who do you love and what do you love to do? So I think that in the end we're, we're left with, <clears throat> the sense of not knowing and striving to find the most true place that you have in this lifetime with people and with work. And I, I don't know what else there is. Hmm. Um, and this, this idea, I mean, I, 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 this is, these are your words, but that the subject of your work continues to be the normal daily things that people fall in love with. That's very resonant with that. I'm just curious. Um, we're talking at, in the early afternoon. Um, have you fallen in love with something today? Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> Too what many have you fallen things. in love with? Okay, just start. <laughs> uh, well, I've been painting all day, and mm-hmm. I... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. And I've been doing paintings uh, for this book about cakes, this cookbook. Mm-hmm. I'm doing paintings and short stories, memories of cake. And um, there's a page about meringue. And <laughs> the cookbook author wrote about meringue. And I found this fantastic bed from East, in an Eastern Euro- a photograph of an Eastern European bed that has a huge quilt with a huge scalloped edge. And it's all fluffy and white. And it looks just like a meringue. So I'm doing a painting of that bed. <laughs> As the illustration for meringues, mm. <laughs> so I so uh, 
<laughs> I fall in love with that. And, you know, there was a photograph in the Times today of, uh, of dancers. And mm. I've, I cut out a lot of photographs of people dancing. And um, I know I'm going to paint them, too. Mm. So, um, and I'm sure when I leave here and I walk downtown, I'm going to walk home to 12th Street. There'll be many, many things that I that will enchant me and make me very happy. <laughs> um, this has been really delightful. I I noticed that you said that in your family you don't say goodbye; you say so long. Why is right. that? Why is that? I have no. I don't know because so long sounds a lot sadder than goodbye. So I don't know why. Uh, it's something that my mother started, okay. and uh, I'm your afraid to change again. it. So we began with mother, your mother, we'll and we end right with your mother. Everything, it's all connected to her. So Sarah uh, Sarah said so long, so that's what I do. All right. Well, I'm going to say so long to you, and thank you so much. What a, what a pleasure it's been. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me, too. <laughs> thank great. you, Krista. Great. Okay, we'll, um, we'll let you know what's happening with this, and it's just, um, yeah, I'm just, I hope I'll meet you in the flesh one of these days. Absolutely. Yeah. When you come to New York City, all right. give a yell. All right. I'm thank thinking, you. Yeah, great. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye.